Beloved Church of God, beginning our service before the Lord, let us stand and affirm the promise that is related to the door of our hope. Let the resurrection of Christ reign in our bodies. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are grateful to your holy name for this once again privilege to be at this holy place that your hand has outlined for the worship of your holy name. Allow your inheritance in the name of the covenant of blood to be lifted to heights higher than us and to break the chains of all evil and sin that holds us captive. May in this service be cursed all the works of devil, illnesses, poverty, premature death, demonic dependencies, all forms of fears, depression, destruction, ignorance, covetousness. All of this, let it depart from the tents of your holy people. And stand, O Lord, on the place of your rest, you and the ark of your greatness. And may your saints be clothed in your redemption, and may they rejoice before your countenance. Give us more from your Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit. Allow us to discover your shining countenance. I lay the service in your divine arms. Guide it with your uplifted hand. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You may be seated.
книга пророка Осии. The book of Hosea, chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Under children, we are referring to the fruit the fruit that we have already offered God, and then after this, forgot Him. And so, according to Scripture, priesthood means to be the intercessor between God and man. Practically, every person born of God is called to be this delegated priest of God in order to have the right to offer himself as a sacrifice to God. If a delegated priest has a lack of knowledge, he, through his intercession, cannot give God the basis for God to keep him from the curse of poverty, the curse of illness, and thus he will be rejected from priesthood, which on one end means that God will cease to answer with his answer his answer his intercession, and on the other end, God will Take a look at Luke, Luke chapter 8, verse 18. Therefore take heed how you hear, for whoever has, to him more will be given. Whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. Luke 8, 18. And if we rephrase this, it'll say, And therefore observe how you obey the heard word. For he who has knowledge and obeys in accordance to this knowledge, to him it will be given. But he who does not have knowledge, he will be taken from that which he seems to have. Imagine a person who tries to understand some kind of electronic device. He's used all of the combinations, all of the codes, but they are without result. After a lot of much time and despair, he finally takes the instructions. And he discovers that he had let go of the most important thing. He didn't plug in the device into the power source. A lot of saints are like this. They try to do everything, but they end up shipwrecked because they are ignoring the instructions. According to scripture, material success on one end is a kind of device in the format of the statutes of God that is presented to us in Scripture, which before using must be read as instructions are read. Any electronic device as a discipline of success must be plugged in to the source of energy, which is God, because each true blessing comes from God. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful, and a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment, because for every matter there is a time and judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly. Man hasn't read instructions, and therefore he is in despair. Who will tell him? 
Ecclesiastes 8, 5 through 7, we're talking about how a person on his own is incapable of achieving this on his own. No books about material prosperity will be able to give him this. This could be given to him only by a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom who will present him the true riches in the faith of God. And only then he is going to be able to be plugged into this power source. And finances, I'm talking about the Word of God and not material goods. And scripture refers to this as well. Because the widow was fed by the word of God which Elijah had spoken to her. You think that this flour in her bowl and this oil gave her the opportunity to multiply? It was the word of God that had multiplied it. Because Elijah said, But the word of God is real. The flour shall not diminish and the oil shall not dwindle. And she had believed this. She had obeyed it. And so many saints across the whole world are do not know the statue and they are under the five categories of ignorance outlined in scripture. This is not knowing who we are. We must know that we are a programmable device electronic device. Our body, our spirit, our soul, all of this is a programmable device. We, so five, five categories. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we have. God has placed in us the potential of his, his own potential. He has created us according to his image and according to his likeness. It's not knowing what we can, and we can unveil this potential only by the obedience of our faith to, it, to the faith of God. We don't know with what and how to fight, and we don't know the principles of creating riches and strategies. How do we control the inheritance, which is our body. We must in, we must rule over the promised land, our, 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 our body. People think that the promised land is material success, but God always referred to our, this, referred to this as our body. As soon as our body is freed from the law of sin and death, all of the riches of the world will be in our hands. And we are going to use them under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and we will be led by the Holy Spirit. And unrevealed potential is a dead potential. Many remain poor because they don't know what they have. They don't know who they are in Christ Jesus and what God has done for them in Christ Jesus. Just like Moses and his staff, they didn't know what was contained in his staff. He walked for long, he relied on it, but he didn't know what was contained in it. He didn't know that with the staff, he could hit the water and the water would recede. He didn't know that with the staff, he could hit the rock and waters would flow. He didn't know that the staff was called to be God's until he rejected his soul in the image of the staff. And God had shown him what his soul was according to his human nature. He ran away from it. This was the serpent. But God said, return, don't be afraid, take it by the tail. We know what the tail of the snake is. It's their wheel. And we know what our wheel is, the wheel of our essence. They're our lips. 
When we proclaim the faith of our heart, we give direction to ourselves. It doesn't matter what our emotions say. When we say, I belong to God, I am in Christ, I'm justified in Christ Jesus. I have that which God has given me. That which God has done for me in Christ Jesus is mine, and I will take it, and I begin to thank God for this although I might not have anything at, that, at this time. I've met people that have said, oh, good, but you're such a wise person, but you've said such a foolish thing. When this house of prayer that you have proclaimed that's yours, when, when it does become yours, will come and repent. Well, how can you say that you have everything when there's nothing in your wall? And at this time, I preached a place of scripture. We having nothing, yet have everything. And during this sermon, the Holy Spirit spoke within me, and he said, Proclaim this church is yours. I, I preached, we came to church. You remember this was at Stanley Avenue. We weren't able to afford it. It cost a million dollars, and we had just come to America. And when I proclaimed it, ours, I said in the sermon, in the name of Jesus Christ, right now, I proclaim this prayer house ours. And they laughed. I'm talking about brothers. And they said, how you're such a wise person and you said such foolishness. And I asked them, what, what was the foolish that I said? Because it says in scripture, having nothing, we have everything. And this person answered me, when you do have something in your wallet, then you can, then you can attest to it. But God said, you have this. I told, I told him, did the widow know that her flower would not diminish? Of course she didn't. But Elijah came and said to her, she could have said, well, let it be completely filled. And he said, no, this little will not, will not run out. Is it best to have millions that are going to quickly diminish or to have a few a few dollars that would not 10 20 dollars that would not waste you take 10 20 dollars and it remains in your wallet see god is a very wonderful figure it's our heavenly father and he has laid this potential on us however much you may take Everything remains the same. Riches are created by God and they belong to God. And these riches can be passed along after the death of the testator to his children. And we know that this testator that had testated to us had died on the cross. Christ redeemed us from the oath of the law. We're talking about the curse that we are found in. He had redeemed our bodies from death from the power of death. Christ has deemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Curses everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. But what is necessary for this? 
What must I do in order to un unveil this potential myself? Scripture says, foolish. What you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be. Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. 1 Corinthians 15.36 We refuse to lose. We refuse to place into circulation because we want 2 plus 2 to equal 4. We're afraid. How is it possible to take 2 minus 2? I don't want to have zero, but scripture says when you subtract two from two, and this is divine mathematics, then we don't know how many millions or trillions and even more there will be. Everything will depend on how dedicated you are to God and how much you trust Him. It's very important that the first commandment in the Garden of Eden was comprised of this. What is holy unto the Lord, do not come close to it. There are many other things that God has said. He said, I have entrusted to you what is hallowed. It is in your possession, but it's not your belonging, it's my belonging. We are first and foremost referring to us. Each of you are belonging of God, holy, redeemed by God. Only when you are redeemed can you honor God tithes, which also do not belong to you, although they are in your possession. Why do people refuse to honor God in tithes and offerings? Because they themselves are so. If they would have accepted by faith that they are belonging of God, in order to affirm that they are belonging of God, they would have honored him with tithes. Because what is the offering of tithes? It is affirming the fact that I am the Son of God, the child of God, his hallow, redeemed. But people don't want to affirm this. And then they are all they also grow sad that God doesn't bless them. You know, when God blesses a person and he dwells with him, it doesn't matter to him how much he has. People had walked through the earth facing hunger and they were the richest, richer than everyone else, despite the fact that they didn't have anything. This land belonged to them. In the future, heaven and earth, it will be created from this land, and it is going to belong to us. And it now belongs to us. And God wanted us to look at this earth as our land. We are created from this land. And God wants us to look at it as our land. This is the land of the Lord's. If I'm a belonging of God, then this is the belonging of God. People think that this is their land and they lead wars. They don't even understand that this land belongs to God's chosen remnant. And that is an image of their body because God had created them from this land. This land is living and it is an image of Jesus Christ. Through Christ and in Christ, he has created us. Christ is an image of this land upon which all the people live. It doesn't belong to them. It belongs to God's chosen remnants. We're going to honor God in tithes and offerings. And we're going to affirm that we are the children of God, that we are holy unto God. And in doing so, we're going to unveil that great potential that God has placed in us. 
and what God does in the future, we can't even comprehend because our mind will be incapable with all its fantasies and imaginations to understand what God is preparing for those who love Him. Let us stand, let us sing, and we are going to honor God with tithes and offerings, acknowledging his authority and expressing simultaneously our love to him. And so with great joy, I remind you that each time Israel had honored God in tithes and offerings, either in the tabernacle of Moses or the temple of Solomon, he was called to, according to the words of Moses, which he had received as a revelation from God, to raise your hands over their offerings and to proclaim one unique proclamation, that they were faithful to for thousands of years. We, being that same Israel, tied to that same root, drinking from the fruit of the same tree, will do the same thing. Please raise your right hands, a symbol of your righteous act, over your offerings, and pray along with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I have separated the tithes from my home and brought them into your home that your home may have food. I did not give in purely. I did not give in sorrow. And did not give for the dead. I rejoice that I have the privilege to express my love and to acknowledge your authority. And according to your word, I ask you, right now, May your heavenly windows be opened and may your blessing come down abundantly upon your redeemed nation. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You may be seated.
You can open along with me a familiar place of scripture that contains the depth of the mystery and visions of God. Matthew chapter 5 verses 45 and 48 So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is a commandment, so that you may be. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. A wonderful commandment, a wonderful command, and if a person begins to think about it, he comes to horror and he says this is impossible it's impossible to be perfect as our heavenly father in the boundaries of the decaying mortal body with all of those things that we we face as humans but the sermon that i would like to continue is related to this place of scripture scripture to this commandment and it's called called to perfection and in conjunction with our study of the path that leads us to perfection, we began to study the path that leads us to God, our bridegroom, in the event that is the image of Rebecca's path to Isaac. And we began to look at the signs contained in the lilies of the valley, which we are called to look upon so that in cooperation with the truth and power of the Holy Spirit,
we could form ourselves into an image of perfection inherent to our Heavenly Father. And I want to remind you that when we are talking about our cooperation with the uh, with the Holy Spirit and the truth of God, we are talking about the role of God and the role of man. We must learn what each role is. This is our cooperation with God when we know our roles. Luke chapter 12, verses 27 to 32. This is one of the commanding commandments that will make us perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect if we do that, which we are going to read about right now. Consider the lilies, how they grow. Obviously, with our eyes, we can look at lilies however much we want, but we won't see anything in them. Here we're talking about the eyes of our heart, and the eyes of our heart to look at the dignity of those lilies. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? You of little faith. How does a person have little faith or a lot of faith? This is based on his ability to hear the word of God. If you hear the word of God a lot, you will have a lot of faith. If you hear it little, you will have little faith. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. Because some people say first and foremost, and then they do what is first, secondary, third, and so forth. They make things up. But here it says, instead, and so seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, not someone else, but to you. Why do you need to worry about what is in this world? The Father has promised to give you the kingdom. According to these words, looking at the unseen process of life that flows through the lily of the valley is one of the conditions necessary for gaining the kingdom of heaven, giving us a right to be clothed in the perfection of our Heavenly Father. And for this purpose, we turn to the unique relationship between the most beautiful of woman and her beloved who, according to the state of her heart and the functions of her heart, contains the virtues of the lilies of the valley that are represented in the heart as the kingdom of heaven that has descended in power. And of course, the kingdom of heaven that has descended in power and the kingdom of heaven that we accept in the seed are two different kingdoms. This is just like there is a seed from an apple and the apple itself. The taste of this apple, its color, its forms, and its properties are completely different rather than the seed itself. And so we started to examine this relationship in allegories that are presented in Songs of Solomon in the command for the most beautiful woman to look at the unseen targets and the virtues of her beloved. Why do we look at unseen targets? Because the hidden process that flows in the lily of valleys shows the dignity of the beloved. Because according to the definitions laid out in Scripture, we know that the unseen targets that we are called to look upon manifested in God's virtues and reflected in His commandments presented in the image of the growing lily 
are eternal, whereas the visible targets, material prosperity, success, and famousness are temporary. I also attribute to this the gifts of the Holy Spirit, anointing, blessing, because all of these are for time. We talked about how in heaven when we get there, we're not going to need the gifts of the Holy Spirit because there won't be illnesses there. There are not going to be any uh, calamity. We won't need any anointing because the anointer will be among us. Everything will be blessed there and we won't need to do something there in order to be blessed. Everything will be there as, as it is. And so these things also are temporary. And when we focus our sight on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, on anointing, on blessings, which we, inc which we include material prosperity, then we will reap what we sow and this will be decay because all of these things are temporary and when we as God's children focus our attention on the visible targets they will transfigure us into idol worshippers and they produce dishonor shame and decay despite the fact that these are gifts of the Holy Spirit anointing and blessing it is given to us not for us to worship anointing, blessings, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. When we begin to worship these things, we become idol uh, idolaters. They are given to us as means so that we can use them in order to worship God as means. And so, Obedience to the word that we hear is impossible if we do not look upon this word. Therefore, the act of looking upon something is one of the most powerful ways of sowing into the soil of our heart. In this manner, those objects that we look upon with lust are sowed in the soil of our hearts and fruit is produced, which then transforms our essence into the nature of this object. So that which we look upon in our mind transforms us into this object. For example, as we talked about, the tricky snake was fully aware of this principle. And so, entering into the limits of the Garden of Eden and turning to the wife, again, we know how Satan does this nowadays through a, rebe through a rebellious thought. He tries to penetrate our Eden. And he created in her, in the wife, the desire and interest to try the forbidden fruit, and she sinned. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, for th that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Genesis 3, 6. And we know the result of that fact that she looked and she saw. It's very, diff it's very dangerous to transform uh, what we're looking at. We need to look at only invisible things, and we must never look at the visible, whether it be blessings or curse. Sowing the seed of sin as well as sowing the seed of truth occurs by looking at objects of sin or objects of truth. Then it happened, this is Second Kings chapter 11, verses 2-4, through 4. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So it, he didn't need to go where he 
who was it should have been talks about when kings go out to when the kings went out to war david remained at home when we do not that which we must be doing we will always be tempted so david sent and inquired about the woman and someone said is this not bathsheba the daughter of eliam the wife of uriah the hittite then david sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house and we know what happened with David and how he had almost lost his salvation, the Holy Spirit, and the kingdom of heaven. If God would not have given him repentance and only thanks to the fact that he changed his what he was looking at and this thought came on the inside, he had the opportunity to restore his relationship with God. And so when we look at the unseen targets provided by the law of grace in the growing lily, they transform us into an image of the Son of God. And according to Scripture, this transformation produces fruit of eternal glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17-18 through 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, seen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We have noted that the result of looking at the growing lily will be the manifestation of life in the body of a saint, which became possible because of the death of the seed that had planted the lily. So in our body, we will begin to be clothed in resurrection if we are going to look at the growing lily of the valley with our heart. And this will become possible thanks to the death of the seed that had planted the lily in the heart of a person. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. 2 Corinthians 4, 10 and 11. This is a wonderful revelation of the last days that the life of Christ or His resurrection is going to be revealed in our flesh. We can be clothed as Apostle Paul said. We can be clothed into the new man or resurrection because previously Christianity always thought that it would be clothed in resurrection in the new body when they receive these new bodies. But here we need not a new body. We have a new man already. Why do we need to wait for a new body? We already have a new man who has in himself the kingdom of heaven that has come to power. He is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He carries this within himself and we must be clothed into this new man. So the life of Christ is in the new man and it can be revealed in our flesh and then all of the viruses in our in our decaying body all of the illnesses all of the decay will somehow disappear I deeply believe in this. I deeply believe in this in the literal sense of the word, that before the Lord raptures his church, old people who had accepted the morning star their wrinkles will begin to soften. They will be renewed. Their cells, the cells in their body will be restored and renewed. And before they are going to be raptured, they are going to be young. Without illness, they won't have this oldness and decay because this is the result of sin, as we know. And so, the death of our Lord in us is the seed of the lily that fertilized the soil of our heart, whereas the life of Jesus in our body 
is the fruit that is grown from this seed, the lily of the valley. Second, the beauty of the lily is one of the virtues of our Heavenly Father expressed in His Son, Jesus Christ, as well as man born from God in Christ Jesus, who grew the seed of the lily into full maturation in Christ. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. So the Heavenly Father says of Himself, of the Holy Spirit of Christ, that He has in Himself uh, the lily of the valley. And He says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young woman. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He, in His beloved, sees these elements and these dignities. Therefore, the natural beauty of lilies and the virtue of the bride of the Lamb opposes the brambles that exist in the nature of the other woman contending for the attention of her groom. Brambles or thorns, thorns as we know uh, from Christ's parables, demonstrate the cares of this world that a person looks upon as visible targets, such as material prosperity, which chokes the seed of the kingdom of heaven in the death of our Lord Jesus and does not bring fruit. Matthew 13, 22. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. It is because of this reason that the other woman contending for the status of a bride in the attention of the beloved are like brambles because the target that they set their sights on became visible material prosperity that they try to gain through anointing and blessing and so forth it doesn't mean that we shouldn't use this this means that we should not worship these things <coughs> and that our main goal is supposed to be our inmost man, humble of a meek spirit. These are our riches. Our riches is that which God does in us and not what God does through us or with us, but what He does in us, how He transforms us, how He grows us into His image. And so, the result of us looking upon unseen targets is the fruit of eternal life in the subject of our Heavenly Father, who descended in power that was previously accepted into the good soil of the heart in the subject of the seed of death of the Lord Jesus. From this, we concluded that we were created with the calling and ability to look at certain targets, and by looking at these targets, transform into their status and their image. In our essence, we do not have the ability to simultaneously look at what is battling each other, what targets are opposing one another in the subject of the seen and fading, and the unseen and eternal. And so before looking at one of the targets that is opposing the other, we as people who are given sovereign rights must make a decision whether or not we will look at the visible and fading or the invisible and unfading. Here is how this is said about in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 and 20, although there are many places of scripture like this where God offers one and the other. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. So, heaven and earth will be 
a testimony that God has offered us life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and the length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So here we are talking about the seed of a good heart, which will grow the tree of life. This is what it means that God will promise to give you the land in which you will grow from the seed of the kingdom of heaven, a tree, the tree of life. And so to choose eternal life and be clothed in its power, we must not forget and always focus our imaginative thinking on the unseen virtues of God, in this case, on the life that flows through this growing lily. Because unseen targets in the subject of unfading riches represent the interests of eternal life in God and with God, whereas the visible targets on the subject of fading riches represent the interests of eternal death in Satan and with Satan. Satan can't forge a character, but he can forge a form of godliness. He can forge all kinds of miracles and wonders, but he can't forge the changed character of a person. Because to look at unseen targets is not turning back when we have obtained knowledge of the truth. Psalms 119 verses 5-7 through That my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed. When I look into all your commandments, I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. And so the image of the growing lily is the image of a man who has a wise heart and grazes among the growing lilies thanks to the fact that he prepared his heart to hear the gospel word of the kingdom of heaven. And so a wise heart is a heart that when it goes to worship God, it prepares itself to hear the word of God like a disciple, not as an inspector, or it doesn't just go in order to place a check mark that he's been in church. From this we can conclude that the whole Holy Spirit shepherds someone with a wise heart. <coughs> Among the lilies, under the condition that this person has a relationship with people who, like him, are clothed in the virtue of a lily of the valley. So, in these truths, Proverbs 13 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Unwise people, as we know, have hope and trust in the abilities of their mind, and they are defined by Scripture as bad company. So, did God not turn? Their intellect is foolishness, and it's very unfortunate to me when children of God are given a heart to understand the Word of God, to be humbled, they begin to, with their own mind, as if they're some kind of Gentiles, they begin to try to understand and comprehend the Word of God, and then they call the, the wrath of God against themselves. And God says, because you have placed your mind equal to my mind, you will perish, because these are the thoughts of God. These are human thoughts in order to acknowledge them with our head. First Corinthians 15.33 Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So foolish people are defined by Scripture as bad company. And therefore, to test ourselves to see if we are part of the family of lilies, 
if we belong to the one who shepherds us among truths, and among which truths do we graze? We must, it is necessary for us to maintain full knowledge of the properties and characteristics that Songs of Solomon uses to characterize the most beautiful of women, Lily of the Valley, so that we can compare ourselves. When we look at its characteristics, we will look inside and we will realize that we have them, perhaps, perhaps in a seed or perhaps very little, but we also will have it. Second, it is necessary to maintain full knowledge of the properties and characteristics that Songs of Solomon uses to describe the one who shepherds us or who our shepherd is supposed to be, so that we can see that the Christ whom we worship is truly the same in Scripture, because today people worship Christ who doesn't exist in Scripture. He has a completely different character in Scripture. They preach of a different Christ, and they behave themselves like those same Christ that they preach about, but Christ in Scripture is completely different. Even the Jews saw Christ different. They thought that he would come as a king and would give them rule over the Roman Empire, but he came humble and contrite, simple. He was born in a manger. He was born in um, a median family. Professionals and working people are never poor because they can eat, they can feed themselves with their own labor, their own hands. They didn't have a lot, but they had enough. And this person was of a noble origin, but they waited for someone else, and that's why they didn't accept him in that form in which he came. Third, it is necessary to maintain full knowledge of the properties and characteristics that are the truths, and that define those people whom the Beloved shepherds, among whom the Beloved shepherds us. My Beloved is mine, and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies. Songs of Solomon 2.16. Take a look around which truths your shepherds um, tend to you. The fruit of the Spirit that is contained in the growing lily of the valley is the result that comes from having the knowledge of the teaching of the blood of Christ and the teaching of the cross of Christ, which are the root system of the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh and created fruit of truth in the teaching of resurrection and eternal judgment. In a certain format, as much as God and the measure of our faith have allowed us, we have looked at allegories that depict the virtue of the lily of of the valley. And we have stopped to examine one of the signs that is presented in the book of Songs of Solomon in the dialogue between the most beautiful of women and her beloved. Let's remember it. Songs of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? God is turning to each one individually and take a look at what he calls us. Oftentimes we don't see ourselves in this way. Satan tries to dim our outlook on ourselves. We look at our flesh, but he looks at our new man. And take a look at what he calls it. He says, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Open to me, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. So we know 
that do is an image of the teaching of Jesus Christ. My teaching will pour out like rain and like dew, Moses said. She answers, I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? <coughs> In an answer to this, the beloved put his hand by the latch of the door and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with mirror, my fingers with liquid mirror on the handles of the lock. We know what the handles of the lock represent. This is sacrifice, the living sacrifice which we become. These are the handles of the lock. We've already noted that in these words, dialogue that occurs between the most beautiful of women and her beloved Lord unveils their deep relationship associated with the anticipation of their meeting and is evidence that she is ready for this meeting. And so, if we have truly loved the coming of the Lord, then it will be necessary for us to test ourselves of our readiness to meet with the Lord in the air when He comes to those who wait for Him and salvation. And to name and define certain signs in the dialogue between the most beautiful woman and her Lord, signifying her readiness to meet with the Lord in the air, we, thanks to revelation from the Holy Spirit, when studying this translated text in Hebrew, came up with an extended version. I am immersed in baptism and the death of my Lord, where I died to my nation, my household, and my corrupt desires. But my inmost man in the resurrection of my Lord is awakened prayer. Here, the invocatory cry of my beloved, who with a knock on my door proclaims the opportunity to use his right to rule, to show his strength in acts of truth. Open to me my sister who is filled with my mirror, who does not have evil in her heart, my beloved friend and the one loved by me, incomparable with anyone, my dove, my perfect one, not having any blemish or evil, because the authorities representing me are sent by me to you and are filled with the word of life, with the power of my spirit. And those who follow it have died to sin, to live for truth and to create truth. I have taken off the tunic of my old man and his deeds. My cross has cooperated with the cross of Christ, and I do not desire to put my old man back on, because I have allowed my feet to be washed by recognizing my sin before the sons of my mother. And I have washed their feet, forgiving their sins. And I do not desire for my feet to be dirty again by sinning against the sons of my mother. My beloved, proving his love, reached out his hand to me through my sacrifice that testifies of my veneration. He called me to freedom from dependence on my old man and his works and gave me the strength to control my mouth and place a guard at my tongue and my core was moved by his works and i rose from the ruins of death by the power of his resurrection and took off the burden of the old law so that my beloved could carve the words of the new law on the tablets of my heart that could clothe me into his truth so that my tongue could be filled with aromatic praise and the words of my mouth, like mirror, could be burned from the four horns of the golden altar of incense. And so, in this saying, presented in the format of a dialogue, we focused our attention on five moments. This is the Beloved confessing her state as a whole, the voice of the Beloved in an answer to her state, 
The first reaction of the beloved to the voice of her beloved, how the beloved reacts to the reaction of his beloved, and then finally, the second reaction of the beloved to how her beloved reacts. In previous sermons, we have already looked at the first two moments and have stopped to study the third moment. In the third moment, in the words of the extended version of the translation, is presented the answer of the beloved to the revelation of God received through the keyhole in the image of the dew and the drops. And as we have previously noted, the keyhole through which the beloved stretched his hand is presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God for reasonable service. And to bring herself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, it is necessary for the beloved to take off the tunic of her old man and his works. I have taken off the tunic of the old man and his deeds. <coughs> My cross has cooperated with the cross of Christ, so this taking off of this happens on the altar. I did not desire to put my old man back on because I have allowed my feet to be washed by recognizing my guilt before the sons of my mother. And I have washed their feet for giving their sins, and I do not desire for my feet to be dirty again by sinning against the sons of my mother. We have already mentioned that in Hebrew the phrase, I have taken off my tunic, means to rip the skin off a living animal. Therefore the phrase, I have taken off my tunic, means I have allowed my skin to be ripped off so that in my distress I could lose my former life. Typically, before placing a sacrificial animal on the altar, it was killed, and then its skin was ripped off and its feet and insides were washed with water. In this case, we are talking about a kind of sacrifice on which the skin of the living sacrifice was ripped off, feet and insides were washed, and in this form the living sacrifice was placed on the altar. So, this could be seen in the Old Testament when the priest came and he took off the garments that he was dressed in. This is the image of ripping off. And then he was immersed in water. He had washed himself on this altar because the twelve oxen in the sacrifice or the twelve pearly gates, this is one and the same. This is a sacrifice where you present yourself as a living sacrifice. And when he washed himself, he presented himself as a sacrifice. And then he was clothed in resurrection. And obviously before this, in order to enter there, he had to forgive his brothers that had sinned against him. And he had to ask for forgiveness of his brothers against whom he had sinned. Only in this manner, will you be able to descend or to ascend on this altar to be accepted by God and to acknowledge His will. That's why in this case, in this dialogue, we have a sacrifice. Thus, before a person is clothed in humility or before he is clothed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and his new man, in the dignity of which he receives the opportunity to acknowledge his guilt before the sons of his mother and also forgive, he will need to take off the old man. And for this purpose, he will need to, in the carrying of his cross, he will need to cooperate because we know that cooperation is the change of fates. We exchange what we have for what Christ has. The taking up of our cross, we give our sin to Him, and He gives us His purity and takes upon Himself our sin. This is what it means to cooperate our cross with the cross of Christ. 
And so, because the truth of the blood of Christ washes from sin, whereas the truth of the cross of Christ separates us from the factory of sin, which is our sinful man. You see, they are two different. They fulfill two different things, two different purposes. The blood cleanses us from, washes us from sin, and the cross separates us from the factory or the manufacturer of sin. In a certain form, we have already studied what the core of the cross of Christ is, what the core of our cross is, and how our cross differs from the cross of Christ, as well as on the foundation of which principles can our cross work with the cross of Christ. And we have stopped to examine the next question. On what grounds can we define that our cross is truly working with the cross of Christ and not his forgery? We have noted that the image of the cross of Christ is presented in 12 stones laid on the bottom of Jordan, which marked victory over death. And the 12 stones that were taken from the bottom of Jordan, which marked victory over sin in the flesh. So, Christ had destroyed sin in the flesh. This was his work. This is his work of redemption. It was his cross. And the image of our cross is presented in the twelve stones on which the altar of the Lord was built in which we must ascend like a living sacrifice. In itself, the twelve stones of the altar show the goals and motives of the human heart expressed in the strive to know the will of God, good, acceptable, perfect. If a person comes to worship and gives his gives tithes in order to receive more, this means that his motives are incorrect. But if he comes with the goal of searching for the good, acceptable, and perfect will in order to worship God, then this is, these are his goals and his motives, and it is that altar. And a living sacrifice presented on this altar is the means that is used to reach this goal. The first sacrifice that, rep that presented himself on the altar in the subject of the cross of Christ is Christ himself, who revealed for us his living sacrifice as a path to inheritance contained in his pure blood. In the New Jerusalem, as well as in our heart, the image of a living sacrifice on an altar out of 12 stones is presented in 12 gates that are a key to inheriting the blood of Christ, presented in the New Jerusalem. If the 12 oxen represent the image of purification, then the 12 pearly gates are the key to inheriting the inheritance. There are 12 and there are 12 but they have different purposes, different goals and purposes. If we see 12 foundations, then the purpose there is the foundation of our faith. Therefore, the inheritance that is presented in the New Jerusalem, the tree of life bearing 12 fruits, and each tree yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree which were for the healing of nations. But the key is held in the 12 pearly gates, and we in a certain format looked at the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel written on the 12 gates, which yield the principles on the foundation of which we must cooperate in the taking up of our cross of the cross of Christ. <laughs> and the twelve pearly gates are a set of twelve principles which are endowed by living sacrifice. Whereas the twelve names of the patriarchs written on the twelve pearly gates is a set of twelve principles that were placed on the foundation in the taking up of our cross with the cross of Christ. The signs in the taking up of our cross with the cross of Christ are called to become the results of resurrection that are yielded by the treasures that are contained in the inheritance of the blood of Christ in the image of the 
the tree of life bearing twelve fruits. We turn to certain feasts and events that are called to present and flow in our heart in the fruits of the tree of life that yield its fruit in the twelve months of the year that are called to serve for us as proof of our work in the taking up of our cross at the cross of Christ. Apostle Paul presented fruit of the Spirit in 12 months of the year in nine components. doesn't mean that there is one more or one less. They all have equal balance with one another. There isn't more of one and less of another. These are properties of one fruit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And these definitions of these properties are not found in any dictionary. They are transcendent revelations. The dictionary will say something completely different about these nine components. Furthermore, it said, against such there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Pay attention. Those who are Christ, they have crucified the flesh, so they have taken off their old man and have presented themselves as a living sacrifice. If a person has not presented himself as a living sacrifice, has not taken off the old man, has not died to his nation, his household, and his desires, then he is not Christ. And this is... This is scary because this isn't preached and people think that they are of Christ and they are going to heaven but they are and they're buried as if they're going to heaven. But many people don't under, realize that millions of Christians that have been buried have gone to hell because they have not taken off the old man with his works. They have not died to their nation, their household, and their corrupt desires. Therefore, according to these words, the fruit of the Spirit and nine components serve as evidence that we are Christ. Second, the fruit of the Spirit and nine components serves as evidence that we have crucified our flesh with its lusts and desires. Third, the fruit of the Spirit serves as evidence that we are independent on the law and live and abide by the Spirit. Fourth, fruit of the Spirit is an expression of the love agape to God and our neighbor founded on the commandments of Christ. Fifth, the fruit of the Spirit in the format of the fruit of love is first and foremost not an emotion but a responsibility expressed in a particular deed that disciplines our emotion and leads it. John chapter 14 verses 15 through 18. If you love me, keep my commandments. It doesn't, it's not written here that if you love me, you must have feelings that you love me. Do you truly love me? So people, they, especially in marriage, they focus on emotional love. And this is good, but this emotional love is fades after the first wedding night. I'm talking about it's going to to dim, but if this because if your love is founded on emotions, it will fade. You must love your partner deeper, not with your emotions, but with your mind. You must fall in love in his build, his structure, his whole essence. And then you will be able to, your marriage will be able to endure. We're talking about a kind of love that perhaps is not known to people. 
If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. And so, observing the commandments in which we are called to show the fruit of the Spirit in nine components will serve as evidence in our heart that we have crucified our flesh with its affections and lusts, and in this manner became the sons of light which points to the fact that the love agape that we are called to show when fulfilling commandments is a love that chooses. Because of this, for some, the fruit of the Spirit in the virtue of the love agape, it will be a savor of death, but for others, a savor of life unto life. And so feasts and events that are in these 12 months yield the kingdom of heaven in our heart, which is presented in the image of the tree of life containing the inheritance of the blood of Christ. And we are called to enter into the treasure of the blood of Christ in the image of the tree of life through twelve pearly gates in which we present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. These twelve pearly gates in our heart contain twelve principles that testify of our work and the taking up of our cross with the cross of Christ. I will remind you that in the Old Testament, the definition of new points to an image of the future that was supposed to be revealed in the New Testament, in which a person received justification thanks to the gift of grace independent of the law of Moses which stirred anger. On the other hand, the definition of the word new pointed to the resurrection of life expressed in the fruit of the tree of life. In a certain format, together, we have looked at the fruit of the Spirit presented in the image of the fruit of the tree of life brought in the first two months of the sacred year. And so we've stopped to look at the feasts and events in the third month of the sacred year in the month of Sivan. And so the fruit of the Spirit presented an image of the fruit of the tree of life in the third month of the sacred ninth civil year coincided with the middle of May or June. This is Sivan. The fruit of the tree of life in this month was comprised of the fact that on the sixth day of the third month was a day of the Pentecost or Feast Week, which was also called the Feast of Harvest. In our case, celebrating the Feast of the Pentecost is accepting the Holy Spirit in our heart as the Lord and ruler of our life. In this acceptance, we are called to bind ourselves to the Holy Spirit on the conditions that are set in place in Scripture. It's not God that's going to bind us. We ourselves must bind us. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 15 through 21, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. From that day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour, they shall be baked with lemon. They are the first fruits of the Lord, and you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. And this is not all. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. 
It shall be a statue forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 through 21. Take a look at how complex this is in order to celebrate this feast or in order to accept the Holy Spirit. And if we don't understand all of these purposes in practice or all of these symbols, this means that we've accepted the Holy Spirit not as the Lord and ruler, but as a guest. That which I have read, we accept Him as Master. And we will individually stop at each sign and look at it in practice. What does this mean for us? Have I accepted the Holy Spirit as Lord and ruler, or have I accepted Him as a guest? And now I sing along with everyone else, the Holy Spirit, you are a guest of heaven. And each time coming to church, we say, I invite the Holy Spirit, let us welcome the Holy Spirit. But when He is Lord and ruler in your essence, you're not going to say each time you come, to home, there is a master in every house. Can you invite a master? No, he's going to invite you. You don't have a right to invite a master into in, into his own house. Imagine you go into a house, you're a guest, you've come to someone's house. You go to the refrigerator, you begin to take whatever you want out of there, and then you say to the master, so we invite you to the table. How is this going to look? This is what happens when you invite the Holy Spirit. If, of course, he is your master, but if he's a master, you're never going to invite him. You're going to say, as David said, I will listen to what the Lord says. I will call in the name of the Lord. To call in the name means to hear what God is going to say in order to immediately fulfill it. When the Holy Spirit is Lord and ruler in our house, we wait for what he says in order to immediately fulfill what he says. Any feast of the Lord is the complete and finished work of God shown in His redeeming grace. I'm talking about the image of this feast. Because any feast of the Lord is the complete and finished work of God shown in His redeeming grace. To introduce human activity in God's act of redemption means to substitute the work of God by some human merit. We should firmly grasp that those who think and teach that baptism of the Holy Spirit can be earned by good deeds prayer and fasting do not obey the truth and are viewed by scripture as fools and therefore the baptism of the holy spirit will not bring them any gain and so baptism of the holy spirit again will not bring them any gain galatians 3 1 through 5 O foolish galatians who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Because today, in order to receive Him, people think that they have to do something, they have to fast, they have to pray. And He says, you foolish. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does He do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And so we've noted that the Pentecost, or the Feast Week, pointed to an image of a future event expressed in the descent of the Holy Spirit in the blowing of a strong wind that was supposed to be fulfilled in the body of Christ, Church of Jesus Christ, in the face of His first disciples in the period of the New Testament. Therefore, the descent of the Holy Spirit from beginning to end is the gift of God's grace shown in His work of redemption 
fulfilled by Christ to which a person has no relevance. Here is what Christ himself says, John chapter 14, verses 16 through 18, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. You see, I will pray the Father, but you will just need to accept. You won't need to pray. You won't need to ask, Lord, baptize me, baptize me in the Spirit. Accept the Holy Spirit. Learn to accept Him. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. They will ask Him, but when they ask Him, they're not going to be able to accept Him as Master. They'll accept Him as a guest. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. John 14, 16 through 18. The core of the descent of the Holy Spirit in the blowing of the strong wind on the first disciples of Christ that comprised the body of Christ was called to blow into them eternal life so that the body of Christ in the face of his disciples could be a life-giving spirit. The same way the first man created by God out of the dust of the earth became a living being because God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the second person, Lord from heaven, or rather the body of Christ, along with Christ, before descending on the first disciples in a fierce wind from heaven in the face of the Holy Spirit became among them a life-giving spirit. He breathed in them, and the church became living. Before this, the church was like Adam. It was created, but it had no spirit. And only when the Lord breathed, it became a living spirit. But here we see, not in the soul is there breath, but in the spirit. The Holy Spirit is given not to our body and not to our soul. He is given to our reborn spirit. He is breathed into the spirit. And there was the breath in the in the in the soul. We know there's difference between a carnal person and a spiritual person. And from the seed of this last person was intended to produce God's people from every nation and tongue, who just like the first Adam could search for God and find him, or find him in their heart. And so the day of the Pentecost in the descent of a strong wind in the face of the Holy Spirit, with the life-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ upon the first disciples, signified the emergence of a new person in the face of the body of Christ. A new person that was not yet on earth, and it appeared not at the moment when Christ died and arose, but in the moment when the Holy Spirit had breathed into this body, into this body of Christ. The day of the Pentecost in its original purpose is not only the descent of the Holy Spirit and the first disciples of Jesus Christ, it is also the birth of the Church of Jesus Christ in the face of His bride or chosen remnants of God, whom He pre-appointed and chose before the creation of the earth. We should know that upon being baptized with the Holy Spirit, we receive a unique and faithful opportunity. This is to either accept the Holy Spirit as the Lord of our life, to receive power from Him and in Him, and create complete separation from our nation, our household, and our corrupt desires. That's why this won't be possible to do with a guest, although you will speak in tongues, but only with a ruler, a master, will this be able to happen.
so that when this happens and we are separated with all of this so that in the Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit we can bring God fruit of righteousness and the subject of a godly life carrying within itself the power of Christ's resurrection until a person is separated until his, his old man is taken off he cannot offer God a fruit of righteousness and God cannot hear him as the righteous and he cannot enter into the presence of the Lord. So he'll need to either accept him in the quality of a guest and continue to depend on our nation, our household, and our corrupt desires and to substitute, so when we accept him as a guest, we substitute the fruit of the Spirit with works of the flesh in the subject of visible godliness that lacks the power of resurrection. Chief shocks that were to be counted off for seven full weeks pointed to an image of the resurrection of Christ and those saints who at that moment resurrected along with him. He pointed to the image of the resurrection of Christ and those saints who in that moment has resurrected along with him. Christ didn't resurrect on his own. This was the first sheep that was waved. And then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Matthew 27, 51. 53. Um, preachers don't oftentimes focus their attention on this, but we must focus on it because the first resurrection has already begun. It began when Christ has, had resurrected, and we already have in, our, in ourselves this resurrection. And in this first sheep, there are many righteous. And I believe that all prophets that we read about they have new bodies. All prophets that we read about, that we know, and that all the righteous, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Christ, so those who had died, if they had died before this, because they did not die, then they will rise along with us. But those who died before this, they had risen with Christ. And they appeared to many. That's why I say when we are transformed in the blink of an eye while still living, first God is going to resurrect the dead who belong to the bride of the Lamb. And they're going to come to our houses. Some saints from our church who had passed away that we had buried before the rapture of the church, before we are raptured, we are going to receive revelation that today we are going to be raptured and today our bodies will be transformed. But they will come to our houses. And in closed doors, perhaps this will be in the day or at night, they'll come and they'll say, peace to you, and we'll be able to hug them. They will be in a new body, and we will still be in our own. Here it says, and they appeared to many. And only then it says, Scripture says, that we will be transformed after them. They are given this opportunity that they had died. They are now given the opportunity to, to resurrect and to transform, and then it is us who will then be transformed. Therefore, the righteousness that we received as a gift of grace and is not sealed with the seal of the Holy Spirit 
is a lost righteousness or a waste righteousness. Second, righteousness sealed with the Holy Spirit is building ourselves into a spiritual dwelling by the power of the Holy Spirit, which we accepted in our heart as Lord and ruler of our life. A person who has received the Holy Spirit as a guest can never be sealed with the seal of the Holy Spirit, and therefore he can never be led by the Holy Spirit. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, and we become sons of God when we take all of these things off ourselves, when we die to our nation, our household, and our corrupt desires. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, meaning my Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. If we enter through these pearly gates, if we rely on these 12 oxen, and so pay attention, a person who has accepted the Holy Spirit as a guest cannot be called sons of God. However, to define in our heart the signs of the fruit of the tree of life, bring its fruit on the sixth day of the third month, which finds its expression in following the Holy Spirit, thanks to accepting the Holy Spirit in our heart as the Lord of our life, it will be necessary to study some questions that are already familiar to us. Who is the Holy Spirit in His incarnation, and what role is He called to fulfill in our relationship with God, and what conditions must we fulfill so that we can accept the Holy Spirit and the quality of our ruler? According to what signs should we judge that we, in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, have accepted Him as a guest like many do, or accepted Him as the ruler like few do, as God's chosen remnants do? In other words, how do God's chosen remnants accept Him? And fourth, according to what signs should we judge that we are being led by the Spirit of God and not the spirit that is the seducing spirit. Since the Holy Spirit is sent by God for the body of Christ, the answer to these questions is in our belonging to the army of Israel in the face of true worshipers of God who worship God in spirit and truth. We know that Israel are those who worship God, who worship in spirit and truth. And so the question, who is the Holy Spirit in his incarnation and what role is he called to fulfill in our relationship with God? I'll remind you that the main difference between between the Spirit of man and the Spirit of God is in the fact that the Holy Spirit is God, whereas the Spirit of a person is the creation of God. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in. And the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. So the Lord, God, the Spirit, there is a difference. The main principle of the cooperation of our spirit with the Spirit of God is illuminated perfectly in the beginning strokes of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation about the Holy Spirit and His acceptance is given to those saints that study and observe the commandments of Christ. Otherwise, we can be baptized in the Holy Spirit, but not have a revelation about the Holy Spirit. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may abide with you forever. So those who study Scripture is given revelation 
conversation about the Holy Spirit, accepting the Holy Spirit who will lead with us a prayer battle and thus will continually represent us before God in the dignity of Israel occurs through acceptance in baptism in the Holy Spirit, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. Acts 1.8 Baptism in the Holy Spirit is the ability to speak in tongues. Speaking in tongues is a result of baptism in the Holy Spirit. The calling and purpose of tongues as a whole are called to give us the opportunity to fulfill our partaking with God through partaking to His people. However, the calling and purpose of tongues fulfill their goals when we understand their purpose and exercise them as a weapon according to the norms established in Scripture. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and one sat upon each of them. So these tongues are supposed to help divide us from our nation, our household, and our corrupt desires. And we know that millions of Christians speak in tongues and simultaneously they say bad words and they are not separated, divided, although they say they are. That means that their baptism has ceased to become baptism. They've accepted it, but now they can't use it. The importance of the tongue, especially speaking in tongues, is outlined in the Bible in a particular way. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Matthew 12, 36-37, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. With regard to being clothed in the powers contained in the dignity of the name Israel, or in our partaking to God's chosen remnants, expressed in partaking to the army of Israel, the observance of the Pentecost, I will mention 12 components of the purpose of tongues as a weapon of the cross of Christ that is called to clothe us in the powers of worshippers of God. First, speaking in tongues is one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit that is given for our benefit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-11 through 11, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, all, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. In this case, it is necessary to know that different kinds of tongues are always tongues, and tongues are not always different. Tongues, everyone must have when being baptized in the Holy Spirit, and different tongues will... Um, will depend depends on what if, what the Holy Spirit gives when he gives tongues. Second, speaking in tongues is called to serve as our bits, which help us obey the Holy Spirit as our rider whose interests we are called to fulfill. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body, James 3, 3. Third, speaking in tongues is called to serve as a wheel in the hands of the Holy Spirit, the captain of our faith, in order to direct our faith where God wants it. James chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. When we give our tongue up for speaking in tongues and the power and the 
direction of the Holy Spirit, then He begins to control us through our tongue, not where we want, but where He wants. <coughs> Fourth, speaking in tongues is called to bring rest to the weary. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 through 12. For with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to his people, to whom he said, This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. So, practically, when it becomes difficult for us, and if the Holy Spirit is our master and ruler, you'll begin to pray simply in tongues, pray 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, half an hour, until completely the storm, the storm subsides, and it will subside. You won't speak one word, you will simply speak in tongues, and all of a sudden the atmosphere will change, the circumstances will be the same, but you will enter into some kind of God's grace and you will begin to praise God, depressions will leave. This is what we're talking about here. That speaking in tongues through the Holy Spirit, so when our spirit prays in tongues, we are going to receive comfort under the condition that the Holy Spirit is our Lord and ruler. Fifth, speaking in tongues is the law that testifies and frees us from the Egyptian slavery of our soul. Psalms chapter 81, verses 3 through 6. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon, on our solemn feast day. The sound of the trumpet, we know, is the not human language, but the tongue. For this is a statue for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob. You see, not always, but at time of new moon. For this is a law of God of Jacob. This is he. This he established in Joseph as a testimony when he went throughout the land of Egypt, where I heard a language I did not understand. I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the baskets when, when he had heard the tongue that he did not know of. Some people say, think that this is Egyptian voice. No. Six, speaking in tongues is a supernatural ability to magnify God. Acts chapter 10, verses 45 through 46. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out, and the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. It is impossible in our own tongue, with our mind, to praise God as will be in tongues. And when you pray in tongues at this time, your mind receives different sentences. Sometimes these sentences are so artistic that you yourself will be surprised and you are going to speak them. Seven, speaking in tongues is a unique form of prophecy. Acts chapter 19, verses 2 and 6. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophecy. Eighth, speaking in tongues is a confidential discussion with God. It is a secretive, trustworthy, and intimate. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2, For he who speaks in the tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries, and when he does speak in tongues, 
He himself may not understand, but your spirit understands. Your spirit at this time communicates with God. Nine, speaking in tongues is edification of oneself. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 4-5 through 10. Speaking in tongues is the ability to gain fruit in our spirit or to feed our spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 14-15 For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Only when you sing with the spirit, don't sing... M melodies that whose of songs words that are not according to scripture take a, some kind of song take the melody of a psalm don't make it up but sing some kind of melody of a psalm that you know because some brothers have told me that one of the leaders began to sing a melody tongues while leading service because when you sing a melody and if the words are known then it will interrupt you i'm not against melodies it might not sound bad but the melody contained words and when you sing melody oh lord my god when i an awesome wonder when you begin to sing in the spirit then simultaneously your mind is also being edified you magnify god this melody and you pray in your spirit this is how you sing in the spirit practice this at home and it blesses you pray melodies of psalms that you like in tongues. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. 11. Speaking in tongues is the weapon of God given us to withstand the powers of darkness. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So, we must use the tongue. 12. Speaking in tongues is one of the unique signs for the unbelievers. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22. Therefore, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. And so from this, how can this conclude for the, what happened for the unbelievers? Believers? It will be the Holy Spirit that gives you knowledge. You will pray in tongues. The unbelievers who are present, the Holy Spirit will allow you to, to be heard in, your, in their own language, but you will continue to pray in tongues and you will understand what he's saying and if in the service there will be 300 nationalities and there will be one who speaks in tongues and one who begins to pray in tongues each of the three nationalities will hear it in their language this is what this is talking about because we must understand that this is the Holy Spirit that gives enlightenment he translates to him and this for him is a sign how can this person he doesn't know my language and he's talking in my language and magnifying God how is this so? So in this manner, this will happen. From this we can conclude that speaking in tongues and baptism in the Holy Spirit is a necessary weapon binding us to the body of Christ or to the dignity of the name Israel through partaking to which we become partakers of the army 
of Israel, or the bride, because only thanks to or the correct use of this weapon, we become worshippers of God in our spirit and fulfillers of His will, which is directed to realizing the promises of God. And because our time has come to a conclusion, we will bow our heads before God. We will thank Him that we've been able to come um, to come to this meeting with God. He said, Elijah, why are you here? He says, because I am zealous for the Lord of hosts. Therefore, let us bend our knees or bow our heads and let us demonstrate our zeal for God and those that desire to challenge their fears, some kind of doubts, some kind of pain because you are looking at the visible, at what is decaying. Come here, close your eyes as an element of your secret room and we will look at the invisible promises of God. The Holy Spirit is here to restore you in your resurrection, to clothe you in his resurrection, and to give you the inheritance with all those who are been renewed. Amen. I will pray along with you with your prayer, and I ask you to deeply believe that God is for you, he is not against you. He has sent his spirit so that he could become the Lord and ruler of our life, and he is here with us today to help us <coughs> overcome our enemy, be separated from our nation, our household, and our corrupt desires. He is here in order to help us renew our thinking and to clothe us in resurrection. He is here in order to forgive, to restore, to cleanse. He is here in order to heal. He is here so that His morning star can ascend in our hearts. And so your eyes closed, your hands raised to the heavens. Pray along with me, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I come to you with my wound, my pain, my shame, my fears, I ask you, forgive me, wash me, cleanse me, heal me, protect me, cover my shame, I uncover my heart, I accept you as the Lord and ruler of my life. Enter me and be the king and master of my life. I am your servant, and you are my Lord, you are my master, my king, my Lord. I bow down before you, I praise you, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless you, may he come down upon you with his holy countenance, and give you mercy, and give you peace. May around you fall thousands and tens of thousands around you, but not draw near you. May all of these promises come upon you and upon your descendants. May all the people say, Amen. And now, all together, let us proclaim our unchanging manifestation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.